Have you ever given much thought to John the Baptist and to his ministry? And we're in Matthew 3 today, so we've got the perfect opportunity to do that, to think about what John, and listen in what Matthew tells us here in these scriptures about John. In those days, verse 1, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's out in the wilderness preaching. That's the first thing we read there. Instead of being, you know, uh, in the holy city of Jerusalem, for example, where the temple was and where the religious leaders were and where the whole national religion was focused. No, he's out in the wilderness preaching this message of repentance. And so he's calling people out there into the wilderness, away from the temple and all that stuff, to go out there to him and hear this message and repent out there and be ready for the Lord's coming, verse 3. The Lord is coming. That's somehow something to do with the kingdom of heaven being at hand. The Lord is coming. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And that's pretty big stuff if you think about it. The Lord is coming. And that's what John's doing, calling people to repentance because they've got to get their hearts ready for the Lord. And it's strange that he's out there in the wilderness of Judea with this message because, I mean, wouldn't we think everyone would be going the other way to get ready for the Lord? You know, leaving the wilderness, so to speak, to go into the temple in Jerusalem, go and listen to the priests in their robes and and, and get themselves right with God there before this coming of the Lord. No, into the wilderness, apparently, to see this rough-dressed guy eating bugs and honey. Verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He will help you get ready for God. Not any of the rituals of the religious system by the nation's religious leaders, but no, a dunk in the river by this guy is what you need to be ready for the Lord. And yet as strange and countercultural as that message surely must have been, it was being taken on board, en masse. It was being taken on by the people, verse 5. The people of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptised by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. This ministry was working. John's asking people to repent of their sin and turn away from their sin because the Lord is coming. And yet, in preaching that, he's also calling people out into the wilderness to go through all that. He's calling them away from their religious rituals and their religious leaders and their religious tradition, you know, all their cultural crutches and comforts. He's, he's calling them away from all that because, I don't know, evidently those things were not helping people to turn from their sin and turn to God. So something altogether new was called for. Something radical was required. Come out to the wilderness and repent and be baptised. That's the basic ministry of this John the Baptist. And it is a ministry, we read in verse 3 there, that was promised long beforehand by God. God spoke of this ministry by John the Baptist 700 and something years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. So too this ministry was promised 
by God in other places. And, and, and notably, I want to draw your attention to this being the last thing that God spoke through his prophets in the whole Old Testament age, uh, the final word from the prophets. And so instead of Isaiah, I want to ask you to look up Malachi. A couple of weeks ago, we thought about the last word in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament scripture books. Do you remember the Hebrews had a different ordering system for the books of the Old Testament? Well, today we might consider the last words of the Old Testament chronologically. And this one's easy to find in our English Bibles. Very easy, because they're arranged more chronologically. So just turn back a couple of pages from Matthew to Malachi. And the end of Malachi. The last words spoken by God in the Old Testament, and and this is now about 450 years before these events that Matthew is walking us through in Matthew chapter 3. The last word from God in the Old Testament was there in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is what he said through the prophet. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the ministry of John the Baptist that we're now reading about in Matthew chapter 3. John is not literally Elijah, as he himself said in John chapter 1, if you're interested. But his ministry is done in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just keep Malachi chapter 4 open there for a little bit longer. and Let me read this to you from Luke chapter 1, verse 16. You, you read along in Malachi there. I'll read Luke, where the angel of God says this about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what the angel of God said in Luke chapter 1 about this John the Baptist before he was even conceived. And here in Matthew chapter 3, John's fulfilling it. Jesus too would later confirm this for us. Turn back to Matthew again, but flick forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 11. This is good exercise for you to flick through the scriptures. Flick forward to Matthew chapter 11, and let's drop in just for a second on Matthew 11 and verse 13 to get Jesus' take on John the Baptist. Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This Baptist in the wilderness is the promised messenger of God that, that Malachi was talking about and Isaiah was talking about. He's the one preparing people's hearts through repentance for the Lord their God. And that's the thing we need to latch on to more than anything about John the Baptist if we turn now back to Matthew chapter 3. That's that's John's ministry. It has a singular purpose and focus. He is here as as a Baptist, as he's called, only to call people to repentance, only to make people ready for the baptizer. 
Jesus, the Lord is coming. And he is another baptizer. Look look down at verse 11 of chapter 3 and let's catch that. Another baptizer is coming after John. I baptize you with water for repentance, John said. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptizer is coming. And Jesus is not going to be dunking people in the river in a, in a symbolic way like John is doing. Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism is in readiness for that. Jesus, when he comes, is going to sort people out spiritually, calling and marking some as his own and burning everyone else. Lest I come with utter destruction, as Malachi had put it, some will first be saved. John's here to warn of these things because Jesus will baptise with finality. And so John is warning people. That's his ministry. He's warning, and he's warning even the religious leaders of the nation, and as strongly as he can, that that's what he's preparing people for, that judgment, that sorting that Jesus is coming to do. Because John can sense with these religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees, that they just don't get the gravity of the situation at hand. Verse 7, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is serious, John is warning, and it extends to everyone. Don't be coming out here to me just to add another symbolic ritual to to everything else you do to make yourself feel religious-y. You've got to get your heart right to be ready for God. And when you get your heart right and ready for God, that's going to start to change your behavior, your actions, your lives. Repentance means turning, not, not adding some other ritual, but changing your heart altogether. We too might easily skim read over the gravity of the situation as John stands there weight steep in the Jordan. Because if we're just cruising through the narrative, reading through, uh, we might just forget you know, what Matthew's already taught us about who Jesus is in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But just so we don't miss it, let me remind us of, of that by, by way of verse 3 in our text today. John, John is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The Lord is coming. 
And what we easily lose sight of in our English Bibles is that when Isaiah prophesied that John would be standing there calling people to make way for the Lord, by Lord, of course, he meant Yahweh, the personal name of God all through the Hebrew Old Testament. But we miss that detail all the more easily in the New Testament because, well, the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. And by that time in the culture, the Greek writings just used the standard Greek word for Lord. And so that didn't then get transliterated into English in our Bibles with all caps, you know, like it did uh, from the Hebrew of the Old Testament scriptures. So it's harder for us to sit here and see where where Lord in the New Testament means Yahweh uh, or, or where it means something less than that. Because, you know, it isn't rendered in all capitals when it does mean Yahweh, if that makes sense. We've got to figure it out for ourselves, to cut a long story short. We've got to figure it out for ourselves each time we see the word Lord, but there's no drama with that. We can figure it out pretty quickly here. In places like Matthew 3, it's easy. Just look up the text that he's quoting from in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Page 599 of the Church Bibles will get you there. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, where we read more fully from the prophet. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. All caps. Yahweh in Hebrew. Prepare the way of Yahweh. And in case we missed it there, Isaiah goes on. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God himself is coming, as he foretold through Isaiah here. Now he is here, says John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I baptize you with water, he says, but he who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear, he will gather, he will burn. It's not just Isaiah and Malachi and Matthew and John the Baptist. Jesus himself confirmed this for us when he said that John was the messenger prophesied there. In that text in Matthew chapter 11 I mentioned before, in where Jesus lined up John with the Elijah figure from Malachi's prophecy. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. When Jesus says that, when he lines John up with Elijah, he's also lining himself up with the Lord. Yahweh. No wonder Jesus will be able to baptize us with the Holy Spirit of God when he comes. As John says here in Matthew chapter 3. And then Jesus does come. And the Baptist is asked to baptize the baptizer. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
John knows where he stands in all this. Even he needs to be baptised by Jesus. And so too then he knows full well who Jesus is and where Jesus stands in all of this. He is the Lord, Yahweh, our God. He is the one bringing the kingdom of heaven to us. John is overwhelmed. Jesus, baptise me. However could I baptise you? But in Jesus, God has come to us in human form, as we learned in chapter 1, God with us. Jesus is here to secure our salvation as one of us. And Jesus identifies with us. Even though he doesn't share our sinful nature and doesn't need to repent and what John's calling to people to, he still identifies with us. He binds himself to us in every way that he can. We might actually expect Jesus to walk into this scene in the river in an awesome display of his power and glory and authority. But no. As with the cross, here in the river... The sinless but humble Jesus is content to be numbered with the transgressors whom he came to save. Fulfilling again what Isaiah foretold of him in Isaiah 53, if you know that scripture. He's content to be numbered with the transgressors here. He came to identify with us. He came to identify with us. and I think it's on our behalf our behalf, representing anyone who ever trusts in him and and needs to receive all of his righteousness. I think it's on our behalf that Jesus enters the river. That's the beautiful thing about this gospel. It's purely on account of our bond with Jesus, our bond with Jesus, whereby all our sin is placed on him. He becomes our sin, and all his righteousness is wrapped around us. It's all about our bond with Jesus by which we may receive this kingdom of heaven that he came to declare. And we'll get to that more later in the series when we start to think more intently about the work of the Christ. But even here in chapter 3, we're getting a preview of it, I think, in this baptism. Later on, in between those two things, Jesus referred to his death as his baptism. Say in Mark 10.38, that was the baptism he had to endure for us, his death. And as if to foreshadow that perfectly here in chapter 3, he submits to the water in this sign. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. However we try to wrap our head around this fascinating scene, the Baptist baptising the baptizer, I think it's those last words from Jesus that we need to take hold of more than anything. Because like everything that Jesus did, this too here in the river was done so as to fulfil all righteousness. And if by the gospel we trust all Christ's righteousness is granted to us, then then we can rejoice in this curious scene. Although he was entirely without sin, as we know from Scripture, Jesus submitted to everything in order to save us. Not just this symbolic river here, 
But so too the horror of the cross that it was pointing to for him. In everything Jesus did, he fulfilled all righteousness and all of it on our behalf. Because everything he came to do was for us. Do you see? God didn't come like this for any other reason but to save us. To proclaim a baptism of the Spirit for those of us who would be baptised with the Spirit so as to save us from the burning fire. And now that Jesus has come to do this, he's not going to leave anything unchecked. He's not going to skip out even on this symbolic water here, whatever it does mean for him. And we should all the better feel, I think, our bond with Christ because he did in this symbol. He did what he then asked us to do. Do you remember where we were the last couple of weeks looking at the end of Matthew's gospel, thinking about how all this ends in Matthew? In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says at the end, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How all the richer, how all the more genuine our own baptism experience is because Jesus went through a symbolic baptism just like this too. He asks us to do what he himself did. And so we've got something so brotherly, so so beautiful and so concrete on on the other end of this bond to hold on to in baptism. All, All the better now we can identify in some tangible way with Jesus. And yet something about his baptism back in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, something about this baptism here is unique to Jesus. Water is water, but there's something about this baptism that's unique to Jesus because when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here in Matthew 3 in the river, we've got clear sight of of all three persons of our three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, the the baptizer, (laughs) coming up from the water. The Holy Spirit, with whom Jesus will baptize us, resting upon him. And the Father from heaven speaking and confirming it all. The three persons of God are not, you know, three ways of thinking about God. They are three distinct persons, coexisting at the same time as we see right here. And yet they are one, of course, as verse 3 made quite clear. I mean, Isaiah and Malachi had prophesied that Yahweh would come, our God. And yet, Jesus came. And they all work together, verse 11. The baptizer, the Son, is going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And the Father, verse 17, loves and approves of all these things. And this trinity we see here in the river, it's the same trinity that Jesus declares at the end of this gospel, where we've been in Matthew 28. Flick there again if you want. Matthew 28, there's just no getting around the fact that not just is the Trinity there in in that instruction, but Jesus, when he set down the the instruction in Matthew 28 for our baptism, 
Jesus placed himself in that Godhead. There's no getting around that. Jesus places himself in this Trinity. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name for three persons of God. And Jesus puts himself into that mysterious formula for God. And that three-in-one concept may well be beyond our understanding, but it's the only way for us to understand Isaiah and Malachi and Matthew and John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Father, Son and Spirit are one. The most fundamental aspect of our Christian baptism that Jesus gave us there uh, is this continuing proclamation of God as Trinity. Problem is, we've just grown up so accustomed to that language in our, you know, our Christianized culture here. We just lose sight of how radical that revelation of God would have been and still is to those who've never heard about God in those kind of terms Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. But this is truly epic. This revelation of God as Trinity in the river of Matthew chapter 3 and in the instruction of chapter 28. And so whatever else we might understand about our modern sacrament of of baptism, I suggest that it must first of all be about declaring God as Trinity because that's what Jesus gave us in the one baptismal instruction in Matthew 28, 19 there. And so too it seems to me uh, that reading through the different accounts of water baptism that were then recorded in the New Testament, well, I think they can all be understood in that way. As a sacrament connected in some way to this revelation or proclamation of God as, uh, as not just God, but Father, Son, Spirit, as the gospel was taken to the world. You see, Trinity goes hand in hand with gospel. Trinity goes hand in hand with gospel. And we need to be very clear about what Matthew is trying to open our eyes to in these first few chapters of his gospel. And again at the end, of course, about who Jesus is. Yeah, he's human. He's got a regular physical body just like ours going into the river, getting wet. But he fulfills all righteousness because he is God. So he's like us in the flesh, but he has no sinful nature like we do. He comes as close, though, as God can come to our human experience without compromising his righteousness as God. So he lives our form without sin and he dies for our sin. That's what goes on at the cross, of course. And in the exchange of the gospel, Jesus carries our sin away and takes it upon himself. And therefore he covers us in in his righteousness. But the depth of that and the truth of that and the reality of that only really starts to sink in once we come to full terms with who Jesus is. The work of Jesus for us only carries weight because of the person of Jesus who is God the Son in human form. Jesus, who is part of this Trinity, 
whom we call God. And if God carries our sin, then our sin is carried and gone. And if God clothes us in in his righteousness, then counted righteous we must surely be. And everything Jesus told us we can be sure of as true. If Son is one with Father and Spirit, then our hope could not be more secure, could it? Matthew needs us to understand who Jesus is because it makes all the difference in the world to the hope that we've put in him. What do you reckon John the Baptist would tell us today if he was to appear again in the wilderness? (laughs) Well, what John would have us do, I'm sure, is just be gathered to Christ now. There's no baptism of John anymore preparing us for the coming of the Lord. The Lord has already come. Paul had to work through that with the people in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. If you want to dig around a bit more on that and see the Trinity at play there. But the Baptist is gone. The baptizer is now here. So be baptized by Jesus, I think John would say, if he did come back now. Be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Be gathered into his barn as his own. And be baptized, as he instructed, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Know this God in Trinity and become his. Look very carefully at this Jesus in the river in Matthew chapter 3. He is God the Son. God the Father approves, and God the Spirit agrees. Behold, the Lord has come, and right down here with us, humbled and lowly like this, he revealed God to us, and he promised us salvation in his name from this this very first symbol in the river to his death on a cross. The Jesus in this river is either perfect comfort for you or perfect conviction. He has the authority of God to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and claim us as his. And he has the authority of God to burn up all the chaff who aren't. So don't just look carefully at this Jesus in the river in Matthew chapter 3. Come to him. Come to him and be saved and certain in him. Let's pray. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, engrave your name and your salvation on our hearts once again today. That according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of you, our God. This is your word. Let it be so.